It's the bottom line. On News Radio 610, KONA, from the Tri Cities to Olympia to DC, we break down, break it all down the stories of the day and the people making the news. And that's the bottom line. Time to get the bottom line. Presented by Summit Funding in Kennewick and Prosser. With your hosts, Rob Francis and Ed Dawson. And welcome into the bottom line. News Radio 610 KONA, Friday afternoon. Phone number is 547-1610. You can get us via email, 610kona.com. The bottom line page, your name, where you're listening, what you'd like to say. We're on Twitter at Bottom Line 610. Parlor, the Bottom Line 610. And we're available through the free mobile app at Google Play and the Apple stores. Rob and Ed with you. going to welcome into the program our good friend from the Washington Policy Center, Jason Mercier. Not much to talk about, is there, Jason? Oh, yeah. There's nothing going on in the state. This will be a quick interview. <laughs> well, That's let's, what you think. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let's start with uh, uh, the state forecast is expected to come out, the revenue forecast, uh, in a couple of weeks. There are some things on the horizon that need to be looked at. And, of course, one of those things will be awaiting the decision from Boeing about the 787, whether or not they will condense it into one plant for manufacturing. And that plant uh, is expected to be South Carolina if they do that, which would mean that's one more thing taken out of the coffers uh, of Washington State. We know that the deficit is growing, and we know that the special session has not happened, nor is it happening. So let me ask you a question. Before we dive into the the specifics, Jason, the one question that's been on my mind about this, especially when we know there is an RCW that says the governor needs to deal with that, is there a responsibility on the legislature to force the governor to address this, or is this strictly something that is for the governor to do under law, but he can choose to do it when, whenever he gets around to it. So the statute in question says the governor shall order across-the-board cuts if a cash deficit is projected. And the word is shall, not may, not has the option, not can if he wants to, it's shall. And we recently had a state Supreme Court ruling on an entirely different issue, but in the course of that ruling, they defined what the word shall means for purposes of the Washington state law. And the state Supreme Court said shall is a mandatory obligation unless the legislature has said that you have an option. So when you go back to that statute on the state budget that says the governor shall order across the board cuts, there's a cash deficit, it does have an exception. It says unless the legislature has acted. So the governor doesn't have to do this if the legislature is called into a special session and they decide that they're going to address the deficit in a different type of way than across the board cuts. But absent legislative action, that mandatory obligation does rest on the governor. So, and technically, a, uh, I was going to technically a violation of that statute is a misdemeanor. So let me ask you this then, because technically he could call a special session December 1st because it's before the legislature is supposed to convene. If that does not happen, if Andy Billig does not put that fourth signature that everyone has has been waiting for, if the governor does not call them into a special session, and this goes into January when they convene, then is anything going to be done about ignoring that statute, or is it just going to be, you're here now, you can take care of it? 
Well, let me first address the uh, enforcement aspect of it, and then I'll address where we stand on if there's a cash deficit. So on the enforcement aspect of this, to your original question, the legislature could, as a legislative body, file a lawsuit against the governor. It was called a writ of mandamus, and that's what you do against elected officials who are not executing a mandatory obligation. And with the statute saying the governor shall do this, that is a mandatory obligation. So a writ of mandamus would be your, your way you would address this. But the fact that the legislature is not calling itself into a special session, which it has the ability to do, makes it highly unlikely that would happen. Now, that's not to say individual lawmakers couldn't file a lawsuit like this or citizens for that fact. But, you know, a, a lawsuit's expensive, and that may be why you haven't seen this happen. As for is there a cash deficit and does the governor actually have to do this? Well, we can look not only at current data, but at historical data. This particular statute got put in place in the 1980s when we were having a budget deficit, and the legislature wanted to make sure that there was responsive action taken if they weren't in session. And as a result of the statute, Governor Spellman at the time put in across-the-board cuts. And we fast forward to 2010. Similar situation is now. Legislature is not in session. Cash deficit forecasted. Governor Gregoire issues an executive order citing the statute saying that she's required to do this. And there was an OFM memo from the Office of Financial Management explaining why Governor Gregoire was being required to do this. We fast forward today. Well, what's changed? <laughs> the only thing that's changed is you've got different people in those positions now. And we were trying to figure out, you know, the, the financial management projected a cash deficit. We know from the Treasurer's Office that on August 31st, the general fund state was upside down by over $100 million. That seems to indicate something should be happening here. So why isn't it? Well, the Office of Financial Management put out a little clarification a few weeks ago saying that, well, there's not a cash deficit forecasted right now because Congress could do something. And we have to wait to see what Congress does. Well, if you're waiting to see what Congress does, then that law would never take effect. And I guess more particularly is I, I did a records request trying to figure out why is nothing happening. And I got my records back, and sure enough, there was an email exchange between the director of OFM and his staff, and his interpretation of the statute where both Gregoire and Spellman executed the cuts was that, well, it's not a requirement, it's an option. Well, that makes it a lot clearer, doesn't it? It, well, seem, I mean, what, it, it seems, Jason, you know, nobody wants to do anything about this right now, or at least the leadership aspects that have the ability to do something about this. And I don't want that to be a blanket statement, because I'm sure we have heard a number of lawmakers go on record saying this needs to be addressed. But those that are in the position to force the hand here are not forcing the hand, and the governor sure seems to be not, not really concerned about dealing with this. He seems to be more interested, and we'll get to this in a few minutes, and just raising taxes some more. Well, we'll get to that economic forecast because that could be the next uh, hammer that forces some action. But, but to the point that you just made, there is zero, and I don't want to uh, let that fact go understated, there is zero policy reason not to act right now. Because if the treasurer is forced to borrow money from other accounts to pay the bills because of a cash deficit, not only does that money have to be repaid back to those other accounts, but it's with interest. So now your situation is getting worse. The longer you wait the deeper the action has to be because you have less time to implement either the savings or the tax increases. So if you had acted back in June when you should have acted, you would have been looking at reductions of probably about under 5%. If you're waiting to January, now you're looking at double-digit actions because you've just 
fewer amount of, of days left in the fiscal year to act. So there's no policy reason to act. Now, why is no action happening? Well, now we'll go to the other word, politics. There is a belief, and they've actually made public comments to this effect, that if they can just get through the election, then they'll be able to claim that they have a mandate to raise taxes next session. So getting through the election, the governor not acting, and Senator Andy Billig from Spokane not adding his signature to the other three that have called for a special session is somehow a mandate from the people to raise taxes. Well, that's that's what some of them have been saying, and you can even go to some articles from some of the uh, some of the lawmakers who say that you know we think that we're going to pick up more seats, and people have been putting us in power because they want higher uh, taxes and income tax. So if we get reelected, and knowing those facts on the table, then we can say that we have that mandate to do this in January. Oh, okay. So maybe you can help me find this one aspect, because the last time I checked, um, the residents of the state of Washington roughly 10 times have said they don't want an income tax. So where is all the evidence that they now want one? Well, you know, people don't always know what's good for them, so they have to make sure that the legislature can inform them. Oh, okay. That's it's that caveat. That's right. I, I keep forgetting that. So now the economic forecast that's going to come out on the twenty third. We we we're we're pretty sure it's not going to be fantastic. Um, the Seattle Times uh, did an article showing um, some downtrends in particular industries, namely manufacturing employment, construction employment, um, that well, are going to be impacted by this and and could take some years to rebound. Now, where do you you find the logic to raise taxes if you've got certain aspects of industry that are going to see declines over the next few years? Where Where does that walk in? Instead of trying to find ways to keep those industries here and grow the economy, uh, last time I checked, taxation doesn't necessarily grow the economy. It just grows government spending. Well, and this is where this this forecast on September 23rd, this revenue forecast, could be something that changes a little bit of the stalemate that we're seeing right now in Washington. Because it's becoming very clear that that bailout that the governor and some of the legislature were hoping Congress is going to provide is not coming anytime soon. So on September 23rd, when the revenue forecast comes out, we'll get to see, was there was that forecast we got way back in June showing a $4.5 billion deficit growing to $9 billion over three years? Is that still the trajectory we're on? Have things changed with some of the loosening of the restrictions as more businesses have been opening up? Have we seen better tax collections? What does the lay of the land look like? Now, this, just this week, we had the economic forecast, and that was what the Seattle Times was reporting on. And that economic forecast had some good news, but uh, some caveats that make you a little bit concerned what's going to happen with the revenue forecast. And, and the good news on the economic forecast was when the governor did finally allow things to start to reopen in June, we did see significant revenue growth. Shockingly, people actually want to shop and go out and engage in economic activity. And there was almost a 20% increase in revenue beyond what they thought they were going to see. Now, the question is, was that pent-up demand? Is that continued growth going to be happening now as, as more businesses are allowed to open up? But, you know, we're stuck in this lock in our phases right now. So there's a question about, are, is that activity going to continue? 
that's one thing that the revenue forecast is going to have to take into consideration when it comes out in a couple of weeks. The other uh, major caveat to that forecast was that it assumed that the federal bailout was going to happen. That was built into their forecast, and we know that's not going to happen now. And the other thing that they're not accounting for, which you alluded to earlier, was what happens with the Boeing 787. Because if Boeing decide that, as is expected, they're going to consolidate that line in South Carolina, it has the potential of 40,000 direct and indirect jobs in the Puget Sound going away. And that actually came up during the forecast. Senator Braun, the Republican budget writer, was asking, are you accounting for this? Because this dramatically changes our revenue forecast. And the state's economist said that it's not going to be built into the revenue forecast, but they might have an alternative. So those are two huge uh, caveats that will, they're going to have to answer in the next few weeks before that revenue forecast comes up. We're going to take a quick time out here on the Bottom Line News Radio 610 KONA. Come back with more with Jason Mercier with the Washington Policy Center. Not only do we have this issue that we're touching on, but also apparently the governor was tooting his own horn earlier this week, and an elected official in eastern Washington said, uh, whoa, 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 hang on, before you pull that chain one more time, we're not seeing what you're talking about here. We'll get into that as well. More of the bottom line, News Radio 610-KONA after this. Join the show. Call the LegendsCasino.com hotline, 509-547-1610. Back to the bottom line with Robin Ed, presented by Summit Funding in Kennewick and Prosser on News Radio 610-KONA. Welcome back to the bottom line, News Radio 610-KONA. Perfection Tire, four locations in the Tri-Cities to serve you. Whether you are looking for tires, which they certainly do a tremendous job in that field, but also if you need a tune-up, if you need brakes, if you need shocks, you need struts, you need a look-over for your vehicle, go to Perfection Tire today. Visit their website, perfectiontire.com, and find out why they have been in business and been locally owned and operated for four decades here in the Tri-Cities. Stop by Perfection Tire and get top-notch treatment for you and your vehicle. Talking with Jason Mercier from the Washington Policy Center here on the bottom line this afternoon. And, Jason, you know, there is there there are quite a few things to unpack regarding the current situation economically and what we are potentially facing down the line. But I thought it was really interesting that Spokane mayor, newly elected Spokane mayor, um, Woodward, came out and refuted Jay Inslee's bragging about the about Washington State being such a great place for workers, jobs, and everything else. He's like, we're not seeing it here. Did it did it skip Spokane? Because we're seeing businesses close. We're seeing people not go back to work because you're keeping us shut down. So when we when we see things like that that come out, talking about different aspects, are they looking at where where the situation is right now, or are they just simply looking at metrics like what the minimum wage is and how, how much the average salary is in Spokane or or in Seattle? Yeah, the the report. This is a very interesting thing. The governor put out a press release that said Washington State has been ranked as the number one place in the country for workers during the pandemic. And obviously, the Spokane mayor had the same reaction that several of us had when you realize we've got record high unemployment, our businesses are shut down, and people are losing their jobs. How can that be? 
But what the governor was referring to was a report put out by a group called Oxfarm, which if you go to their website to give you a little indication of who they are, advocates for progressive income taxes to help redistribute wealth in states. Uh, that aside, though, the, the reason why they ranked us as the number one place for workers during the pandemic was because of things like the high minimum wage, the paid family leave, uh, the unionization. So it wasn't really a matter of do you have a job, not have a job. It was if you're lucky enough to have a job, are these benefits available to you? And for many people in the state of Washington, they're not. So uh, that's why, in fact, I remember seeing it when when we saw that report and kind of eyebrows raising to each other and going, what are they looking at? Because we've got an entire half of a state that is is still at a crawl when it comes to reopening. Businesses that are opening and shuttering and opening and shuttering, depending on the whim that comes from Olympia, and a lot of inconsistencies across the board. Oh, and that large $8.89 billion deficit that we're looking at, how does that exactly make for a good working environment? Yeah, and the Spokane mayor has a little uh, a better vantage point than, I guess, the, the governor does because she can just look across the border there to Idaho where their unemployment rate is half large and all of their businesses are open and their economy is fully functioning. So to say Washington is number one in the country for workers, it's a little bit of a stretch. Oh, it's a significant stretch. And once again, we still see nothing on the horizon, Jason, to, I mean, the problem, and to me, tell me if I'm wrong here, is that as we have seen small things move forward and small little gifts being given here and there, they're coming sometimes with more confusion than clarity. Because you can do this, but only under the circumstances of this, and only if you do this, and only with this involved. So it's almost like a business that has a license to operate is being given 15 more hoops to jump through before they can actually operate their business. Yeah, and we saw this happen with the agricultural tourism rules that came out. I know that there was a brief moment of hope here locally that the Fairchild Cinemas were going to be able to reopen as a restaurant. Now it looks like that's been put on hold. But you've got a situation where we're having these arbitrary rules put in place without stakeholder input. And there's a little bit of an ironic situation this week with the Department of Health where they kind of complained about being in the same boat as the rest of us when it comes to the federal government and how the federal government treats the state. I wish the DOH would realize they're kind of doing the same thing to us. Well, it's not only the DOH, but certainly the governor as well. And, you know, we've seen other states, even states around us. You mentioned Idaho that have taken a different tack to this. You know, Idaho to, or Ohio, or excuse me, Oregon to a degree has taken a somewhat different tact than we have. And yet we still kind of sit here as the frustration grows while we're treading water, wondering when are we going to be able to get anything out? I mean, the governor's made no indications that we are going to be reopening phases to move anytime soon, even though we continue to see numbers Dip a little, dip a little, dip a little. We see hospitalizations stabilize. The death rate's not there. And yet we still continue to muddle through this almost like somebody who's chained up to a hard work rock breaking gang in a prison. It's hard labor that we're condemned to here. That's what it feels like, that level of frustration. I'm going to take a quick time out, come back with more with Jason Mercier. From the Washington Policy Center here on the bottom line, News Radio 610 KONA.
speak your piece. Call 509-547-1610. More of The Bottom Line, presented by Summit Funding in Kennewick and Prosser on News Radio 610 KONA. Back at the bottom line, News Radio 610 KONA. Roof Max, been warm this week. A lot of people's roofs getting beat down with that sun. Put an extra layer of protection on it. In fact, make it last another 5, 10, or 15 years with RoofMax and their state-of-the-art application developed at Ohio State University and at Patel Labs. They'll come out, they'll give you a free estimate, they'll tell you if the application will work for you or if you need a new roof, but if that application works, it'll, it only costs 15 to 20% of what a new roof would. So contact RoofMax today, put a little bit of extra life on your roof by going to their website, RoofMax.com. Robin Ed with you, Jason Mercier with the Washington Policy Center, joining us this afternoon. And Jason, uh, I paid Rob a dollar, so he's going to let me ask you a question. So I thought that was nice of him. Um, We've talked about this subject before. Um, Maybe uh, maybe worthy of an update. Uh, We know that state employees, their contract talks are not done in the sunlight. Uh, They're behind closed doors, uh, yet they get taxpayer funding, which is a uh, been a bone of contention for many people, including yourself. Do we know uh, where those talks are right now? Well, let me give you your money's worth, Ed, since you had to pay for the question. <laughs> uh, the short answer is we don't know what's been discussed. We don't know what has been promised. We don't know what the impact is going to be on the budget because, as you mentioned, these are done behind closed doors. The details and the contract proposals are not posted. And, in fact, union members don't know because it's only their leadership that is involved in these talks. So the only information we have is what the union posts on their website. And from that website, we know that the talks are not done yet. The last update was August 28th, and they said that they are still trying to figure out what to do on what's called the economic issues. And the economic issues are compensation, pay raises, uh, other type of uh, non-wage type compensation. The the challenge, though, is those contracts are due to the Office of Financial Management by October 1st, so the OFM director can do what's called a financial feasibility to see if the terms that have been negotiated behind closed doors can actually be afforded by the state. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about that. There's no definition of what financially feasible is. So in the past, these uh, contracts have actually been agreed to at the same time the governor has proposed tax increases to pay for them. Now, if you have to have a tax increase to pay for something, it probably wasn't financially feasible, but that's an entirely different situation. We do know that with this economic forecast coming out, with the fact that governor has instituted some furloughs and reduced the uh, pay increases for a select amount of employees, that that conversation at least has hopefully been occurring as far as what can the state afford when it's facing a $9 billion deficit. But we just don't know, and we probably won't know until after those are submitted to the governor and he decides whether or not he's going to try to put them in his budget. Well, it goes back to the previous conversation. Uh, You mentioned the deficit, uh, the calls for a special session. Um, Can they even do a special session now with uh, several moving parts, including those negotiations? Yeah, because these negotiations are not for the current budget. It's for the next budget, the 21-23 budget. And this is a little strange dynamic to this because there's an election right now this year, and on the ballot is the governor's race. 
So you have a possibility where the current governor can be negotiating behind closed doors the contract that is going to bind the next incoming governor. And that incoming governor can't change that because once a contract has been agreed to, it's kind of put in place there. It would be an unfair labor practice to unwrap it. So there's the odd political aspect of the fact that our, our calendar sets up to where in an election year, the governor is negotiating behind closed doors an employment and compensation contract that will bind the possible next governor coming to office. So it doesn't necessarily have an impact on on uh, the budget talks, but it it does potentially bind the hands um, of the next governor is what you're saying. Well, it has a huge impact on the next budget, the 21-23 budget that the legislature also has to address next session when it comes into office in January, because whatever the governor agrees to, the legislature can't change it. All they can do is say yes or no. So you have another situation where your budget writers are having their hands tied and can't make any type of prioritization or changes to, to this contract. This hasn't always been the case. This was just put into place in the early 2000s. Prior to that, these talks were public, if you will, because they occurred through the legislative budget writing process where the unions and every other interest group went to the legislature, made the case for the funding they should get, and then that's how the decision was made. This has kind of been a more recent change. As far as is this a reason not to have a special session now because these talks are unresolved, most definitely no, because what you're asking the legislature to do right now is to address the current budget by doing that, it could actually free up some savings that can then be used for potential contracts in the next budget. Well, you mentioned the election this year and have an interesting scenario with uh, one of the state Senate races in which there are two Democratic candidates on the West side uh, going against each other. And normally something like that probably wouldn't be on many people's radar except for the fact that Governor Inslee has jumped into the fray and has backed the challenger over the incumbent. Maybe explain why that came about. Yeah, this is just a fascinating scenario. Not only do you have the the situation where you have a sitting governor injecting himself into a legislative race and campaigning against the incumbent of his own party, but the reason why the governor is doing this gives you a very clear indication of what his priorities are going to be next session, especially on taxes. And the race in, in, that this is coming down to has to do with Senator Mark Mullet, who is actually the Democratic chair of the Finance Committee. You may recall we talked about how he kind of led the fight against that title-only bank tax bill because it circumvented his committee and he knew it was unconstitutional, and they kind of just imposed it over his head. But the other things that Mullet uh, has done is he was a big supporter of charter schools, is opposed the capital gains income tax and other type of tax increases. And part of the reason why is he's a business owner. He, he owns uh, an ice cream store. He has to sign paychecks. He knows <laughs> he knows the bottom line of, of how, to, how to, the economies of a business work. So he's on the moderate end of the Democratic caucus. And the, the governor has basically come out and said, I want progressive income taxes. I, I want a carbon tax. And Senator Mullet is standing in my way. So I'm going to endorse the more liberal challenger to the sitting senator. And that indicates what the governor's plans are for his budget. But it's also a very strange situation of uh, injecting himself into a legislative race against a member's own party. And it's actually 
even Senator Billig and some other moderate Democrats are not too happy about the executive branch kind of having a heavy hand in legislative issues. Well, which goes back to a previous conversation about uh, the executive authority. We're talking with Jason Mercier from the Washington Policy Center here on the bottom line, News Radio 610-KONA. You know, Jason, this isn't the first time that we've seen the governor and the legislature uh, have a little bit of a dust-up. We've seen it a few times since he, going back to 2012 when he was first elected. They sit there and they take it. And they continue to, I mean, just look at the current situation we're in. The emergency power situation. My personal opinion, and tell me if you think this there's any merit to this, is that he and the legislature have absolutely no desire to do anything with this until the election, simply because of the fact that they don't want his emergency powers touched. There are many on the, on, the, on the left, there are some on the left, but there are still many Democrats that don't want Inslee's emergency powers touched. Inslee doesn't want his emergency powers touched. And there's no question that is going to be a priority. In fact, what I'm hearing is there are three or four bills in draft already that are going to address the governor's emergency powers. But he wants to keep this run as long as he can because while his agenda is moving forward, he's again able to turn around and point to things like you brought up earlier – about, oh, well, this is a mandate to increase taxes. We have all this money we've lost. Now we have to increase taxes. So the longer he's allowed to maintain this these this unended emergency power, he has the ability to continue to drive things into a position where he can say, well, we have to raise taxes now. Well, I mean, there have been bipartisan calls, uh, not only for the special session, but to take a look at the emergency powers, not not because if it's Governor Inslee or because of a, a liberal or a tax issue, just because of trying to protect and respect the legislative branch as an institution, as a co-equal branch of government. But, you know, I have to say, because I've been tracking not only what happens here, but nationally, what in, the governor is doing is it's not unique to Washington, and it's not unique to Democratic governors. You have a similar situation happening in Idaho. There's been a, a fight between the Republican governor of Idaho and the Republican legislature trying to... to Define those separations of powers and what a legislative power actually is. And actually, the Idaho legislature, in their recently concluded special session, tried to end the emergency declarations from the Idaho governor. Uh, you have situations happening in a, the other another Republican state in Tennessee, where the Tennessee lawmakers are saying you've got way too much power that's not including the legislative body in these emergency orders that are impacting all of our constituents. And, you know, they're trying to look at should the legislature be required to sign off on every declaration after 30 days. And the Republican governor of Tennessee is out there saying, you know, kind of hands off. I need to have the authority to do whatever I want to do. So it, it, it's more of a institutional fight between the executive and legislative branches versus a, a Democrat or Republican thing. But it, it shouldn't. there's just too much power in the hands of one person right now. And, you, you know, we, I mentioned earlier what was happening with the agricultural tourism rules that really would have shut down, you know, the pumpkin patches, the hayride, those type of things, because those rules came out with no input at all for the farm community. And that would never happen if this was being done through the legislative branch. You would have had that public opportunity. And once the farm groups actually said, this is just not practical, but, you know, to the governor's credit, he, he relented and he, he changed that order. But the order never should have come out without that input first. 
We're going to take a quick time out here on the Bottom Line News Radio 610 KONA. Come back. We'll wrap things up with Jason Mercier with the Washington Policy Center. A couple more things to touch on with Jason. And, uh, well, you know, see if we can look through the crystal ball and maybe we can get something before January. The Bottom Line, the only place that cares what you think. Call in now, 509-547-1610. Presented by Summit Funding in Kennewick and Prosser. Back at the bottom line, News Radio 610-KONA. Robin Ed hanging with you, joined by Jason Mercier from the Washington Policy Center. Jason, i got to ask you, because there's a lot of people that are out there that have been told that they can't have a picnic. They can't have a funeral. It's got to be below this amount of people. You can only work out with five people in public, even if it's in a park. What What is this, what, what is this, this situation um, where farm groups have approached the governor about fall family events and lifting restrictions on events that are coming up for the fall. When we've had this situation going on where everybody's saying don't get together in groups and don't do this and don't do that because of this, well, where's the pressure coming from and what are these events specifically? Well, you know, interestingly enough, with with the Farm Bureau being able to push back and the farm groups, that was a, that was interesting because the governor did basically reverse the restrictions he put into place. And in fact, with Labor Day coming up this weekend, if you go to the Department of Health's blog this week, you know, they didn't tell you to go out and have a picnic. But for the first time, they said, you know, if you have your picnic, make sure you've got your social distancing, you're not sharing the same food. So it was a little bit of a tone change, kind of realizing that you know, people just can't stay locked down indefinitely. Treat them like adults and tell them how to behave in a, a safe way, and hopefully folks will do that versus trying to top down, restrict, and micromanage every moment of every second of a person's not only economic activity but their personal lives. So, you know, you're going to continue to have these mandates coming down, but it, it was interesting to see the success the Farm Bureau had in kind of getting that reversed. And they, they had a, just an amazing infographic that – maybe sealed the debate for them. And it showed a, a King County Metro bus and a hayride outdoors and said, you know, one of these supposedly is safe and the other isn't. Why is that? And it was just a very powerful uh, way to communicate either something is safe outside as it is inside. So is this something that other industries may be able to piggyback off of in order to get more things opened up or, you know, was the governor worried more about a donation not coming through? Well, you know, hopefully this is all a mood issue because, as you know, the rates are going down, the hospitalization is going down, the deaths are going down. But there is a an effort right now, especially as you see the frustration today with the problems with people to be able to access the online portals for the schools and all the challenges of remote learning. There is a tremendous focus at the state level to try to get the schools open. And, and that's laudable, uh, but I'm a, a little bit concerned because of that. with that focus, the Department of Health and the governor made it very clear they are not going to allow new economic activity, regardless of where you are in your rates, until the schools reopen. So kind of, you know, we went from bending the curve to here are the new benchmarks to now here is the new goal line. And, and that's, I think, the frustration is at any given week not knowing what success looks like. So, Jason, you just described issues with the – online remote learning this was decided it was going to happen how many months ago 
Yeah, it, you know, not only did you see the situation here in Kenowa, but the Seattle school district had their entire system shut down. And unfortunately, uh, some school, Zoom, got uh, hijacked with some very inappropriate material. So you, <laughs> we, we've had time to prepare for this, but this is an entirely different way of engaging education in the state. And, and well, maybe there's some silver linings to that. Maybe we're going to start to realize that this way we've been trying to educate children for 100 years in this kind of almost factory public model, maybe there's some alternatives that provide a better educational outcome for individual students. Well, I guess we will see. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully the kids wind up getting into school in October. It would be nice to see if things continue trending the way they have been. Um, You know, things in our area have been – I mean, it's been a much smaller and shorter roller coaster than it was a couple months ago. You know, some days it ticks up a couple cases, some days it ticks down a couple cases, but overall we're not seeing 50 and 60 and 70-day case counts in Benton and Franklin County anymore. We're seeing, you know, I mean, it's we're looking recently, and in, it's high if it's in the 20s. You know, most days now because of of how the curve has been bent even further down um, in Benton and Franklin counties. And I mean, just looking at, at at what we've got today, we're still looking at some pretty decent numbers. I mean, you know, hospitalization rates at twelve point seven percent, thirteen cases in Franklin County, ten cases in Benton County. It just some 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 of the things just doesn't make sense, but ultimately. You know, when the kids do go back to school, it should have a positive economic impact because that means parents are going to be able to return to the workplace uninhibited as well, correct? Correct. And, you know, the next comic I'm going to make, I want to clarify, I am not a a health expert or education expert, but just from seeing what has happened to date, my, my concern is... If we aren't going to kind of change how we are evaluating things and, and engaging in things, what do we do in two, three months from now when schools have been reopened and you have your, your flu season or you do have cases? Are we going to shut everything down again and kind of be on this roller coaster? That, that's the concern I have at this point. I mean, you want to get to where everything is open and you want to hope for the best because of all the benefits of that. But I haven't heard addressed yet what happens when we know the flu season is. What happens if cases come back into schools? That, that what if happens next that I haven't heard addressed is what's really concerning. Well, and the other thing, too, and, and again, none of us are health experts, but as we sit there and we look and we know that flu season is going to be on the horizon in the next couple of months, are we going to again have more confusion between what's the flu? You know, is it a flu case? Is it a COVID case? Or are we going to be at the point in time that we're going to be able to determine the difference much better than we were able to determine the difference? back in the late winter and early spring this year. Jason Mercier, Washington Policy Center. Always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Great. Thanks for having me on. And, Ed, it was good to get one question from you. Yeah, I, I, seriously, i got to dig in deep in my pocket so I can afford another one next time. It's more than one. Just a case. If it was a dollar, you, you had like a quarter by the time you were all said and done per question. So do I get change back? Is that what you're saying? Yes, you get a refund coming. Sweet. You get change. We'll just have a good, you know, we'll, we'll take care of that. and We'll take care of your change as soon as we, uh, we, we take care of the budget deficit. That's when it'll be coming. Hour number two, coming your way next.